Hidden Heroes, a podcast series from UNICEF. Stories about the power of women and girls. This is Hidden Heroes. I'm Beth Murphy. You remember when you were growing up, being homesick from school? I do. I'd be lying in bed, fever, chills, and there's my mom, by my side, taking my temperature, bringing me saltines and ginger ale, pulling the blanket down snugly over my toes. Can I get you anything? She'd ask over and over. Those words alone felt like medicine. There's a word for what my mom was doing. She was accompanying me, letting me know that she was there for me, right by my side, ready and willing to do whatever I needed. Now, imagine if there could be someone accompanying all vulnerable people when they're sick. Not just children, but all people in need. There's a social medicine movement to do exactly that. The idea of accompaniment is really this moral act where we try to walk with a person, really understand them, and learn from them about what their needs are, and then try to meet those needs. That's Joya Mukherjee. She runs a master's program in global health at Harvard University. She's a physician and the chief medical officer of Partners in Health, PIH, a global nonprofit based in Boston, Massachusetts. PIH has been practicing, studying, and shouting from the rooftops about accompaniment for more than 30 years. The term comes from PIH's work in places where community health workers are called accompanators, which means people who accompany. The notion that we use about accompaniment comes from liberation theology, which was the idea that if you want to help really ameliorate suffering, you have to walk with people. You have to be side by side with them for as long as it takes. And the reason that has been so compelling is that the problems in the social medicine, the social forces, poverty, homelessness, lack of running water and sanitation, these are the things that drive disease. And if you just see a person in a clinic, you never know what that whole social milieu is. When I was a young medical student, I worked in Kenya. And one of the things that we did was weigh babies. And we put the baby's weight on the growth chart. And if the baby was losing weight, we would hold up a poster and explain that these are the four food groups and your child needs this, you know, protein. That's not accompaniment, right? Because if I had walked with the mom, I would have seen undoubtedly that for her family of five, or six, or seven. There were maybe two sacks of grains, and no livestock, and the roof leaking, and has only a rudimentary hoe to dig her garden. And so me pontificating about the proper weaning foods to give her baby was the most ignorant and uninformed approach. But that is a standard approach. So it's both the moral support that will help lead to the proper material support, but it's also the way to educate ourselves 
about the lives of people in poverty and how we can truly assist. In our last episode, we met Gladys Vega, a community organizer in Chelsea, Massachusetts. It's the city in the state hit with COVID-19 first and worst. Gladys doesn't call what she's doing accompaniment, but that's exactly what she's doing and has been doing for the past 30 years. And because she's been on the front lines of grassroots activities for so long, she was in the perfect position to know exactly what her community needed when the pandemic started. Here's Gladys. These are baby toys. These things. Okay. You're welcome. Just make sure you wash them and that's it. Okay. And whatever I'll find around, I'll save it back for you. Okay. Okay, So you have my number. If you need anything else, you just text me. Okay. Okay. God bless you. Thank you. Like I've never heard somebody come out and offer additional help on what they actually do. Like I've never seen a place give out more than diapers or formulas together. Oh, she's such a miracle. Chelsea is an immigrant community, and when the pandemic started, Gladys recognized immediately that when people were asked to isolate for two weeks or ten days, they just couldn't do it. The barriers were too great. They didn't have enough food, couldn't take time off from work, otherwise they couldn't pay the rent, or living in overcrowded conditions. When we spent time with Gladys, she was handing out food and diapers and even packets from your organization, Partners in Health, with pamphlets about knowing your rights like your rights as a renter. Why was it important to share information like that in this moment? Health doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? It is something that is deeply related to the interaction between the society and your environment and your body. There is no way to understand health as biology alone or as what you can afford to pay for alone. It is really about where you live, if you have safety, if you have enough food, if you have a job, if you, you know, and so we're practitioners of social medicine, which is looking at medicine in the context in which people live and understanding the, the need to address housing, food, water, sanitation, job security, all of those things, which are basic social and economic rights that that profoundly impact health. But it's also the ethos of feminism and particularly black feminism. If you think about what black feminism teaches us is that the people who have been oppressed, they're the ones who really understand the system and they understand how the system needs to change. The other thing we learn from that sort of lens is the need to center caretaking, caring for one another, rather than sort of counting bodies, rather than sort of control, social control. You have to go there to quarantine, but actually say, how can I help you? How can I care about you? Communities are populated with women like Gladys who hold up the earth and putting them in roles that they're able to do what they want to do, which is help their neighbors, help their families, is just so critical. It's a shift away from, you know, medicine as social control. And we see that a lot in, you know, the idea of biosecurity. What if we replace that with the notion of solidarity? 
you know, that, that we're really in this together and that we're going to fight for one another. And I think women do that. And particularly women who've lived with oppression. Joya, what happened here mirrored what was happening in communities of color all across the United States, the interconnectedness of racism, inequality, and healthcare. People really seeing for the first time what you have seen for decades, that racism is a public health crisis. Viruses like COVID, diseases like diabetes, they're neutral. It's what pushes populations, people to be sick from the very same illnesses is the what we call the social determinants of health, whether people have access to medical care, whether they have food, whether they have clean water to drink. And so when you think of what it takes to have equity around the globe, to have human dignity, to treat everyone as if they were your own family, healthcare is very central to that. So if you want equity, you have to resource equity. You have to understand that the poorest people are sick because they have food insecurity, they have job insecurity, they have unsecure housing. If you don't resource the social inequities, you cannot deliver equitable care. When people looked around the world at what countries were prepared for pandemics, the United States was ranked the first in the world because all that was assessed was the inputs. You know, do we have ventilators? Do we have oxygen? Do we have enough doctors and nurses? And we do. But the distribution of those things is wildly inequitable. The racist policies actually get into the body by differential rates of COVID and differential death from COVID. So even though from a monetary point, the U.S. should have been ahead. And from if you just look at the virus, the virus should hit everyone equally. What we see in the epic failure of the United States to control COVID is the deep and historic inequalities in our country that are driven by, you know, our history and present day practices, particularly of racism against black, brown and indigenous people. I think the secret sauce of everything we do is what we call the resource care coordinators, which are community members who, when people cannot quarantine, isolate, they understand what they need to do, but they can't do it. Then we try to provide the resources to allow them to do that. So that might mean delivering groceries. It might mean delivering diapers or formula to a mom for their small baby. It might be helping people to apply for food stamps or unemployment uh, benefits. That resourcing of equity that, you know, from people like Gladys, that is to me the way that we address inequity in this terrible pandemic. Joya, why now, after more than 30 years of commitment to accompaniment in different countries around the world, why is now the time to take what's been learned elsewhere and apply it here in the U.S.? There is tons of wisdom in the community. And we make a mistake if we think that it's just about the medical establishment educating people on what's right. This is an iterative process that you do with communities through walking with people, knocking on doors, having town halls. We've learned that from all over the world. If you listen to what people need and have many local people have a say in 
how a program looks, it's going to be far more uh, successful. In the beginning of the crisis for Sierra Leone in 2014, nobody wanted to go for care. It was highly stigmatized. But when you looked at care and you asked people why, the quote unquote care was deplorable. You know, there was no running water, there was no food, there was no medical care. So the idea of just putting your loved one in essentially a cell so that they don't infect others was not something anyone was going to sign up for, right? So we have always felt like leading with care is part of accompaniment, making sure facilities are decent, dignified, have staffing, have medicines, and then have community members who themselves have had the lived experience. Many of our community health workers in that Ebola crisis were people who were Ebola survivors. So they could talk to people about what it was like, what the unit was like, what they would have to go through, compassionate care and trying to understand, you know, people's fears. Because the fear of contagion, the fear of illness, the fear of death is a normal human thing. How do you get around that? You get around it with care, compassion, love, and a sense of a shared humanity. Everybody wants to make it about culture or about ignorance, but the why was because of a lack of respect, love, and compassion. And if we had more Gladyses in the U.S. health system every day, we would have a totally different outcome. Hidden Heroes is a UNICEF podcast series about women's and girls' empowerment, their stories, activism, and solutions. It's produced by Principal Pictures with funding support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This episode of Hidden Heroes was reported and written by me, Beth Murphy. Our series is written and produced by Amory Sievertson. Sadie Zook is the associate producer. Mix and sound design by Mike Moschetto. Editing by Erica Lance. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. For more information on this series, go to unicef.org. Thanks for listening. Do you know a hidden hero? Call 1-347-921-HERO. That's 1-347-921-4376. And tell us about a hidden hero in your life. We're excited to share these stories on social media, and maybe even in future episodes, to celebrate the hidden heroes in your community. And thanks. Thanks.